We're going to uh, continue our time this summer in, in wisdom literature, taking a look today at a particular form of wisdom literature known as a wisdom psalm. But we are, it's necessary to be reminded of the fact that, that wisdom in the Old Testament and frankly throughout the scripture conveys the idea of skill. We often think of wisdom as, well, that's just maybe for folks that are old and maybe they know how to do things. Uh, the scripture says the young can be wise because the young can possess skill from on high and in areas, various things of life. All of us recognize skill when we see it. Look around this room, look at the things that take skill to build or bring about. We recognize the idea and all we're doing now is taking that same concept of wisdom or skill and looking at it when it comes to crafting a life. Much like a a vessel at sail on a sea, our life needs crafting. It needs a skillful stroke. And of course, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. We'll see. And what we're going to see today in Psalm 112 is the blessing of the righteous. For those that have skillfully understood that God is the beginning and author of all things, we can now understand that we have blessings that will come our way as well. Wisdom literature is interesting because it often teaches us the real pearl of wisdom literature is that at times the unrighteous, the wicked, the ungodly win the day. That's an important bit of information that God gives us in Job, Ecclesiastes, throughout the Proverbs, is that keep in mind that there is a formula, and if we follow that formula, that is, if we place our faith in God and attempt to live according to His ways, we can expect generally a life of blessing. Wisdom literature tells us that sometimes that doesn't happen, that sometimes the wicked prevail. Psalm 112 is a nice refresher in the basics, that a life led righteously has benefits and has blessing. We're going to take a look at a few of those blessings in this most interesting little psalm known uh, as a, a psalm of wisdom. There are 150 psalms, obviously in the book of Psalms, and about 12 of them are known as wisdom psalms. I thought 12 was very appropriate in this town, so we can remember that very easily. There are around 12 wisdom psalms particularly arranged psalms that remind us of the wisdom of God that is ours uh, for the taking and how God wishes to dispense that wisdom. Most recognized of the wisdom psalms that we'd be familiar with, certainly Psalm 1, how blessed is the man, Psalm 112, what we're going to study today, Psalm 119 and 139, and of course, there's some others. The main thing that wisdom psalms do and wisdom literature at large does, it contrasts the righteous and the wicked. And it contrasts it so powerfully, it's as if they, the author puts a sign at the back of the room and says, uh, no gray allowed in this room. This is a, a consideration of very black and white things. The way of the righteous portrayed in many of these psalms and in area, other areas and the way of the ungodly. Now, life is led in the middle, I realize, that the righteous struggle with wickedness, and the wicked at times can do things that appear to be righteous. But these are sort of basic reminders of this is the way and the look of the righteous, and this is the way and the end of those that are ungodly. It sort of takes us back to spring training, if you will, sort of Bible 101. This is how God views the world. 
in our culture, we'll say this person's either a believer or an unbeliever. In the Old Testament, they used the term, you're either righteous or wicked or ungodly. And so the all of humanity divided up around those two main things. As we saw in Psalm 1, as we'll see here in Psalm 112, all wisdom literature contains a blessing formula. It will make a statement like we'll see today. This is what the blessed man looks like. Blessed is the man who does this in Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who enjoys the benefits of God seen in Psalm 112. The blessed formula, we'll talk about that concept of blessing. Wisdom psalms are also delineated by a good healthy dose of the fear of the Lord. This reverential regard for God and his ways, often the beginning of our step toward wisdom. The fear of the Lord is also mixed in with a healthy love for the law or the word of God, the Torah is seen in the Old Testament, a love for the word of God that seeks him and follows him. Also, one of the things that you'll see in wisdom literature is this idea of justice. Fancy phrase is the inevitability of retribution. It will work out. If we're living in a day and age in which the wicked apparently have the upper hand for the moment, wisdom literature comes along and reminds us there's a day coming. There's a time in which things will be squared up. And you can look forward to that day and endure this one in light of the fact that that justice will be meted. That retribution will be inevitably brought to our account. What we'll also understand, and if you're like me, you sort of develop a love-hate relationship when it comes to wisdom literature, to be honest with you. I love it at times because it gives us such beautiful pictures of what life under the Lord is supposed to look like. It's very inspirational, and I aspire to be like the righteous man described here in Psalm 112. But I'm telling you, it's also convicting to the core. And when I'm studying and reading and preparing for this, I'm coming up with all different ways to not preach this sort of material. Because the last thing I want to do is stand up here and say, you see this righteous man we're talking about? That's me. That's not what I'm about today. We are all sitting under the authority and instruction of Psalm 112. Because it's a a very beautiful yet convicting mirror of what this is what God says the righteous man looks like. And I don't know if about, about you, but I look at that mirror and I go, whoa, wow, what is that? Look at that little thing there. I don't even know what that is there. Are all these blemishes that come up. But because it's inspirational and aspirational, it tells us the truth. It tells it like it is and also affirms us and pulls us and pushes us forward to being more like that righteous man. I'm more like this guy in Psalm 12 than I was last year and a lot more like him than I was 20 years ago, but there's a long way to go. And so together, let's learn from this psalm uh, as we see wisdom literature unfold. Interestingly, Psalm 112 is linked to Psalm 111. I want to go ahead and get you to turn to Psalm 111 and 112. They're like dance partners. They're meant to be read together, and there's a connection. Now, we're just going to focus on Psalm 112, but sort of the background of that psalm, obviously, is the previous psalm. Psalm 111 focuses upon God's righteousness, his standards, his ways of being. Psalm 111 verse 3 says, his, capital H, righteousness endures forever. In the same exact construction in Psalm 112, 3, talking about man's righteousness, it talks about 
his lowercase h righteousness endures forever. There's a cause-effect relationship between the two. Because Psalm 111 talks about God and his righteousness and how he wants to ascribe to that righteousness. He's sort of the lead in, uh, in the dance duo. And we see what God and his righteousness is all about. And then in verse or in chapter 112, we see how man can also enjoy a right standing with the Lord. So those are the two connections between the Psalms. Uh, rather small font, I realize, but we're going to spend a little time observing Psalm 111. You probably need to do that in your own Bible unless you have Superman X-ray vision. But I wanted to show you the structure of the psalm because when I click the slide to move to Psalm 112, you'll see it's exactly the same construction. Same number of verses. They're both written a certain way we're going to talk about. But mainly at this moment, let's just do a little Bible study method, observational moment or two, and and see some of the ideas that emerge from Psalm 111, and then notice how those similar concepts will emerge in Psalm 112. Is that okay? So Psalm 111 first, God's righteousness, righteousness from God's perspective, and then Psalm 112, man's righteousness, how God wishes man to behave rightly. But notice the connections as the words unfold. Psalm 111, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the, and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear him. He will remember his covenant forever. He has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Now let's take a look at Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment, for he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Lots of similar thoughts. Lots of similar ideas. As we now turn our attention to Psalm 112, we remember the background of that psalm really being Psalm 111. Both Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 are acrostics. Uh, That's a a combination or an idea in which each particular verse begins with the next letter. 
Now, we often will memorize things that may be difficult to, to remember by forming an acrostic. I learned how to spell, for example, the word geography by remembering the ridiculous sentence, George Edward's oldest girl rode a pig home yesterday. Okay? George Edward's oldest girl rode a pig home yesterday. Geography, G-E-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y. I've still got that word today. I think of George Edward's oldest girl riding a pig every time I think about geography. I've learned to spell the word that way. And when it comes to poetry, we can recite and memorize and recall things that are arranged according to an alphabetical acrostic. This is done via the Hebrew language. Be similar to our A, B, C, D, and E. They're going to arrange this psalm according to their alphabet, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, etc., Uh, There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and there's going to be 22 different little strophes or stanzas, little mini verses in this particular psalm. Each particular stanza beginning with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's easy to memorize. It was easy to transmit. It would be easy to keep the psalm intact, of course. Uh, Other acrostic psalms found in the the, uh, scriptures include Psalm 9, 10, 35, 37, Our partner Psalm, Psalm 111, also Psalm 119 and 145. Now, I'm going to give you a moment just to meditate on God's Word here just for a second. I'll be back in about 10 years. Um, This is Psalm 112 in Hebrew, and all I'm trying to do is to show you through the yellow letters uh, how the song is arranged. One of the things that's important to realize is that the Psalms are poetry. They have structure. Uh, Some of them were simply meant to be recited. Others were like poetry that was set to music. Uh, This one being meant to just be recited has good structure to it. You can see verses 1 through 8, there are two stanzas or strophes in each verse. And in the final section, when we get to talk about the wicked, uh, we got verses 9 and 10 that they, they take three strophes each. So eight verses of two each, that's 16, and then the remaining six. That gets us up to 22. And as you might imagine, uh, the, first, the first stanza here is going to begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That's the letter Aleph, similar to our A. So you got Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav, Zion, etc. And it's an easy way, if you know Hebrew, to memorize it. Now, what it looks like in English is this, because what's important also is that the, most, that the word that the author really wanted to focus on, he not only had to find the next letter, in the alphabet to bring it out, it was also the concept or the word that he wanted to focus on in that particular stanza. So in English, obviously in Hebrew, they'd all be at the first, but our language requires more arrangement, so we can't do that. But the concepts come through nonetheless. And so what Psalm 112 is doing by arranging all these words at the first part of each stanza is letting us know the main idea that it wants to communicate. So the idea of blessings or commandments or to be mighty in generations, wealth and the righteous, uh, graciousness, well-maintained, remembered, steadfast, upheld, freely, righteousness, horn, the idea of the wicked and their teeth and their desire is how the author wants to move the poem. So it's poetry. It's got structure. It's amazing that it, was, it could be, incorporate both the progression of the alphabet and also bring out the ideas. 
And I think it's important to remember for the whole idea of inerrancy. You just think about how we are reading a psalm that we are absolutely certain is the same psalm that would have been read 2,500 years ago because it's maintained its alpha order. Not certainly in the Hebrew text and as well as the English. What's going on now with wisdom literature and particularly wisdom psalms, sort of the main player in all of these all of this type of literature is this idea of righteousness. Now, that's a word we don't use a lot. We we'll use the word right a bunch, like you got that question right on the test. But righteousness, that's sort of, a, that's sort of God lingo. That's sort of church language. So let's make sure we can unlock that word and have a good understanding of it, because it's really the key to understanding Psalm 112. Throughout the psalm, like we saw with 111, his righteousness endures forever. His righteousness is steadfast. What is this idea, biblically, of righteousness? The Hebrew word sadiq, you'll remember that or you've heard that name uh, in a king in the book of Genesis called Melchizedek. Melech means king. Sadiq is righteousness. That's a name you don't hear often. Hi, I'm the king of righteousness. I don't think you'd want to be known by that unless you could really pull it off. Apparently he could. Sadiq is this idea of a standard and meeting that standard. So very technically, Sadiq conveys this idea of conforming to or meeting a standard. And in the idea of Sadiq and its equivalent in the New Testament is really the whole gospel. For the gospel is all about a standard and us not meeting it. I get that from Psalm 11, verse 7, which is next here on our overhead. My favorite verse that talks about the idea of righteousness from the Lord's perspective Now, this word, by the way, can be used to describe uh, the scales at the marketplace in Deuteronomy 25, where it says, make sure that your scales are right. Now, think about it. You you go to the the store and you buy five pounds of something. And if you ever do it, you put it on that scale and it moves over to five. You're pretty sure that you've just purchased five pounds of tomatoes or whatever it is that you wish. You expect it to be a right scale. You expect it to really be... uh, Stating what it is that you're purchasing. Notice that same idea here in Psalm 11, verse 7. The Lord is righteous. He is righteous in his character. He is righteous through and through. It's not just something that he acquires. It's not something that he is when it's time for judgment type things. It is who he is at the core. And to understand God and to understand him correctly is to understand all of his attributes and that he is a combination of all of his attributes in one being. We can sort of get into a Luby's cafeteria approach to God and we'll say, give me, I'll take two mercies and three grace and throw in some compassion over there. But God is saying, no, you got to get the Luan platter. You got to get the whole thing. You got to get your your veggies, too. You got to get the justice and the wrath and the righteousness along with the grace and mercy, peace and truth. The Lord is righteous. But I think this is the the next little stanza is the one that unlocks it. He loves it. He loves it. He loves righteousness. He loves the idea that there are standards. And he loves those that meet the standard. As I said, inherent in the whole gospel presentation is this idea of righteousness. It's Paul's whole argument in Romans convincing everyone that God has a standard and we ain't met it. How then can we meet the standard? In Hebrew thought, to to not reach the standard for any reason, to veer off, to not reach it, to fall short of it, is to hata, to sin. 
So whatever the standard is, if you don't meet it, you have shown yourself to be a standard misser, a sinner, when in fact God wants us to be standard meters. He wants us to be righteous. And of course, the Lord has come up with a very creative way in which he can maintain his standards. He never lowers them. The standard is always the same. He is the standard. The Lord is righteous. But by his son and his death and, our, and the righteousness that can come to our account by simple faith in the one who died for our sins and rose from the dead, we can have the righteousness of Jesus Christ put into our account. So righteousness is the crucial thing to understanding the gospel, and it's certainly crucial to understanding wisdom literature. For God sees those that are righteous, and he says, now I want you to behave a certain way. And those that are not righteous are called ungodly or wicked, and the call to them is you need the righteousness of God. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. The message of the psalmist is therefore pretty simple in Psalm 112, like most wisdom literature. The content and knowing the content is not the hard thing. This is an application psalm. Doing what it is that he's asking us to do is the hard thing. In this psalm, the psalmist will state the blessings of the one who fears the Lord because his righteousness endures forever. We'll see the stability and solidity of the righteous and the great benefits and blessing of being properly related to God. But it doesn't just end there. What this psalmist is going to remind us of is that if you have begun your life with the Lord and you have the righteousness of God placed into your account, we would say you are saved, you are justified. There's also an expectation that we are to live correctly, that we are to live righteously, to be who we are, if you will. And so that psalmist will arrange his message accordingly by, first of all, announcing the blessing that is afforded to the righteous. And then in the meat of the passage, in verses 2 through 9, he'll describe the blessing and various things that earmark and delineate what the righteous look like or should. And lastly, the exaltation of the righteous through the vindication over the wicked, a classic wisdom literature uh, entree. So let's take a look now as we get into this psalm and turn to Psalm 112 verse 1 now, if you're already there. And we're going to make sure that we, we see how he introduces it and take a look at a couple of words that appear in this verse that are very important really to our understanding of the rest of the psalm. He's going to begin it like he did in Psalm 111 with a a, a collective call to praise the Lord. In Hebrew, hallelujah, the idea of halal means to praise or lift up, extol. Uh, The you is everyone. It's a plural command. And the object of the praise is Yah, short for Yahweh. Let us all praise Yah. Or as we would say down here in Texas, y'all praise Yah. Okay, that's easy to remember. A collective command to extol the attributes and actions of the Lord. To recall them specifically. And that's what's going to happen in this psalm. We're going to praise the Lord and talk about all the things that he has done for the righteous. And all the things that he now wants the righteous to perform. Praise the Lord, he says. How blessed is the man, there's the blessing formula found in most wisdom psalms. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. If there's a key to this psalm, it's found in those two words. The blessed man is so blessed because he fears the Lord and delights in his commandments. 
The idea of, of, of blessing is this idea found in this word Asher, by the way. You remember one of the sons of Jacob in Genesis 29 and 30 was called Asher. It's because the, the mom who gave birth to the kid was, was, uh, was trying to have more kids than the other mom. That's a whole other story. And she was happy, blessed, she felt, when she was able to have this child. But happy can sort of ruin our understanding of this word. We think of happy as smiling and, and carefree and, and everything going perfectly. And that's really not the idea. This doesn't have anything to do with the circumstances that one is going on. This is rather the attitude that one possesses during the circumstances. This idea of blessed is the conditions and situations of the one who is right with the Lord and the pleasure and satisfaction that is derived from that. One of my goals this morning is to remind us that Psalm 112 is trying to teach us that we should be pleased and satisfied that we are in the righteous community. And frankly, if you're here and are not in the righteous community, the psalm is saying, join the righteous because there is great benefit and great blessing. We don't need to be ashamed of that. We don't need to cover that up and just kind of aw shucks. Psalm 112 says there is great benefit and blessing, and we can have pleasure and satisfaction with the fact that we are right with the Lord, both legally and experientially is where the psalm wants us to think. So this kind of blessing is that attitude of the one who is right with God and is enjoying that relationship. So despite circumstance, one can say, I'm blessed. One can say, I'm happy, if you want to think of it, that term and in the fullness of that concept. What is the one who is blessed? What does he do? He first fears the Lord and delights in his commandments. To fear the Lord, found in every piece of wisdom and literature in the Old Testament. It is this idea of a reverential regard or respect. To, to hold something in awe. Uh, to treat it with deference. To, to note its presence and to react accordingly. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Solomon in his sermon in which he was dedicating the temple in 1 Kings 8. Now the term fear is not in this verse, but the same idea is. We tend to think of Solomon in his latter years, and yes, he did not end well at all. But Solomon was a wonderful author and a wonderful theologian. Read 1 Kings 8, among many others, and you'll see how he viewed the Lord and the wonderful insights he had into the person of God. For he was a man who possessed great wisdom, great skill. He used it improperly later, but at this time in his life, it's one of the greatest lessons on Old Testament theology of God that you'll see anywhere. And he's waxing eloquent throughout this whole chapter, and then he sort of gets to the application point, and he'll weave this kind of phrase throughout the very long eighth chapter, and he'll say, let your heart therefore be wholly devoted to the Lord. Literally, it reads, may you be complete in Yahweh. It's a double entendre. May you be complete in God. May you recognize that you are whole and full because of him. And may you enjoy that wholeness and fullness. May he complete what you lack. You're not meeting the standard. And once you meet the standard, may you find your all in all in him. And recognize your sense of completion and identity is only in him. There is a scene in the Old Testament that that frankly haunts me. And one of the reasons I love the Old Testament is because it has such grandiose pictures. 
I mean, you've got ocean splitting and ocean swallowing armies and creations of things out of nothing, worldwide floods, huge towers. And my mind sort of opens up and I see those pictures and, and those concepts and I hope to try to convey them. And there's such a picture in the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is so named because they were numbered for war, about to go and take the land. But what's going on originally or early in the book of Numbers is that God sort of gets everybody after they've come out of the Red Sea experience. He gets them down in Mount Sinai, counts up the guys for war and says, we got to get organized here. He says, there's going to be this tabernacle, this tent. And inside that large tent area, there's going to be a particular area in which God is going to reside. Smoke is going to come up and there's going to be a glorious shine to it. And then we're going to arrange three camps over here to the north, three tribes rather to the north. We're going to get three over here to the east and three back over here to the south and three over here to the west. And we're going to arrange all of our existence around that central presence of the Lord. Happen to have a very rare photograph of that particular scene right here. And you'll notice, and I, if you've got 600,000 men, which is actually 603,550 guys that are counted for war, you can extrapolate that and figure you've got a society of about 3 million folks. Okay, there's give or take a few, but that's how they do it. You've got 600,000 20 year olds or above, you can figure about 3, 000, 3 million total folks. Just get up in a helicopter with me and think about this. You've got this tabernacle, this large area here in which you would go and, and, and meet the Lord. And you'd enter one way right there, and a priest would talk to you, but where the action was, was over here, inside, right here, the most holy place. And the glory of the Lord would come from there. And when the glory of the Lord moved, they would strike the tents and move and follow the glory. And if it would stop over here, they would strike the tent, put the tabernacle there, and then arrange themselves around it. And if you get up in that helicopter with me, you would say, all these people are arranging themselves around that central presence. To me, in word picture form, that's the essence of the Christian life, is it not? The intentional arrangement around the central presence of God as revealed in the scripture. He's here. I must arrange myself accordingly. Like we would rearrange and arrange our living rooms or dens or this stage, we arrange our lives around his central presence. That's the idea of fear. That's the idea of holy devotion. It's not a terror. It's a, it's a reverence. It's a regard for something more important than myself. Now, that's sort of, the, uh, sort of the rough side of the blessed man. He fears the Lord, if you will, but look at the soft side also. He delights in his commandments. It's not burdensome to study the word of God to the blessed man, to the righteous man. This concept of delight is this idea of pleasure or willing. He wishes to do that. Psalm 1-2 will say his delight is in the law. Psalm 112, or what, 11 verse 2, this the previous psalm says, the works of the Lord are studied by all those who delight in him. I think of Proverbs 2. It talks about going and mining. You're going to pull out some nuggets of truth. He says, if you search for me like a miner would for gold, you'll find me. And you'll find those insights from the Lord. Think of a miner. Face is all smudged up. Knees are torn out. Bloody knuckles. Because he's been in or she's been in there looking for golden nuggets, looking for ore. It's a proven mine. They know they're going to find it, but they got to work to pull it out. And that's that idea of delighting in the scripture. Because if you do that, you will pull out those nuggets 
And then that will bless your life and you will bless others in accord with that. And, you will, and, a, and a cycle will be constructed and you'll want to go back and do it again. And thus now time in the scripture becomes time with the Lord. And it's delightful to learn how he thinks, to see the consistency, how he communicates and the beauty through which he communicates rhetorically. That's what the one who not only fears the Lord, but delights in his commandments. There's now a description of the blessing in verses 2 through 9, sort of the meat of this psalm. And it comes in a variety of different packages. In verses 2 and 3, we see the physical and material blessings that the righteous do enjoy, usually. We'll see the insight and well-being that is the portion of the righteous as described in verses 4 and 5. We'll see that the righteous are solidly established and ever remembered in verses 6 through 8. And in verse 9, we'll see that they are ever generous. And I think that one stands alone because if all these things have come my way, I can thus be generous to others because I have recognized the fullness of God's grace that has been my portion. And so I can be generous to others. So let's take a look at the first little section here, this material and physical blessing seen in verses 2 and 3. His descendants will be mighty on earth, Psalm 112, verse 2 says. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. There is uh, this idea that righteousness, once it's established, takes this firm hold on people and our effect on this world. And our descendants then can be mighty in righteousness, can be mighty for the Lord. If you want to, uh, if you're in Israel, if you want to praise a man, you'll use the word here for mighty, gibor. You'll say he is an ishgabor, a mighty man. This idea of might, obviously not just physical strength. That's not the idea here at all. It's impact. It's this idea of leaving behind something that's powerful. I did not embrace the things of the Lord when I was a young man. I did not come to faith till I was 29. My wife did not. I had the privilege of leading Val to the Lord when she was 24, and we began our life together. Did not have a family background that we could draw upon. A, a, a legacy, a, a descendancy of the upright was not powerful in my lineage. I've learned about youth group from my kids. I've learned how, that kids can walk with the Lord in college from my daughters. That was not our experience. But one thing that the Lord, through His grace, is doing in families like mine and families like yours, whether you're first, second, 50th generation believer, you are leaving a trail of righteousness. You are raising up descendants who can be mighty for Him on this earth. And the generation, that's, that's sort of a future aspect that the first part of that verse refers to now. How about now? Those that are alive and well on planet earth are also blessed by the presence of the righteous. We make a difference. The way we think, the way we conduct our lives, the way we uh, want things run in our families, in our businesses, in whatever area of life that we have influence on, we can leave behind a blessing of righteousness. Not only in the future, but also now the generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. 
Wealth and riches biblically, especially in the Old Testament, is a very spectrum kind of word. We tend to th- look at those two words and think of the super rich, very wealthy. Lexuses and mansions and houseboats and all this stuff that we might see on TV. That's not the idea. It could include those people, but it usually talks about those that just have an abundance, that have more than they owe. And a result of that, because they have an overage, they're able to share with others. That's the, the mindset of the wealthy and the rich biblically. It is also important to realize that if we follow biblical principles, the general expectation will be the accumulation of some sort of wealth. It's not an unspiritual or unchristian thing to have things. If things have you, that's the difference. But biblically, the normal pattern is, is if you follow the teachings of the Lord and follow good stewardships and savings and grace and all those things, there will be a blessing that comes your way in the form of physical and material things. What we do with that abundance then becomes the test. Now, wisdom literature also teaches us sometimes that's not true. Sometimes those that have a lot will have a lot taken from them. Case of Job. And for Job, the question was, Job, now that the chair has been pulled out for, uh, from under you, how will you respond? And he struggled. He said some great things. Yet though he slay me, I will trust him. But he also wanted to take God to court to show that God was wrong and he shouldn't have done this to him because Job was over-relying on the formula that righteousness will always lend itself to blessing. It generally does, and in the end, it always will. But wisdom literature tells us sometimes the roles get reversed for a season, but that'll be taken care of at the end. Psalm 112 is going to remind us back to the basics. Righteousness should result in an appreciation of the things of the Lord, embracing how he views things such as wealth and riches and how we might use those things for his glory and benefit because our righteousness endures forever. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, compassionate, and righteous. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment. Notice the insight that the first stanza gives us. Those that follow and seek after wisdom will have insight. Light will arise in the darkness for the upright. Things that might appear cloudy and difficult to understand, the righteous seeking God and his word will have insight, will have light into that dilemma. I'll come back to the three words in the second stanza because they're really the key to this little section. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. Well, he's gracious He lends because he is gracious, and he has received graciousness, and he will maintain his cause in judgment. Under scrutiny, it's a a difficult phrase to translate, under scrutiny, you will see that the righteous man behaves justly, consistently. He's just and fair when no one's looking. He's just and fair when everyone's looking. Because he understands that the standard is the Lord, He tries to meet out the standards in all areas of his life. But the three key words in this little section that describe the righteous man and his blessing are these terms, gracious, compassionate, and righteous. Let's take a look at those just for a second. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. We've looked at this term many times. It's never too old to do it again because it's the essence of biblical Christianity That this idea of grace is that God deals with us not based on what we deserve, but rather what we don't deserve. 
Every other approach known to man throughout history has tried to reach God based on our merits. Look what I've done. Look at the things that I was doing. Paul himself says in Galatians, I was advancing in Judaism more than all my countrymen. That's what people who work in a corporation say. I was climbing the ladder. I was, I was doing better. And I was getting closer to being received by God. It is this idea of grace that says, no, you bring nothing to the table. In full recognition of that, then we know, then I need everything. If I bring nothing, then I need everything. That's grace. That's the idea where one can go to another and say, you don't deserve this, but I would like you to have this. In God's case with us, he has said, you don't deserve what it is I'm about to give you, but I, through faith, will give you the righteousness of my own son and put it into your account. One who has been impacted by grace is expected and is often gracious himself. And we'll see that with the righteous man. He is compassionate as well. It's a hard word for guys to understand. The ladies get this word easily. The Hebrew language, by the way, this word comes from the word for the woman's womb. And it's the idea of the full expression of the womb as the metaphor unfolds. It is that tender feeling. Now watch how they think. That tender feeling from this area... If you see something that, that, that needs compassion or invokes compassion, maybe you see a terrible situation on TV or, or something, and you just kind of go, oh, man, that's rough to watch. Your womb kind of turns over, the Bible says, literally. And so one that comes from this area, or you have this feeling in this area for one that comes from this area. Moms get that very easily, that tender, compassionate feeling that you would have for your own children. And you have that tender feeling from the same general area. That's how the language sort of works. Guys, we're not outside of that. We don't have wombs, I'll admit, but we can feel compassion and tenderness for such a one in dire straits. Go back and study the, the words of Jesus. You'll see many of his miracles and many of his teaching were precluded by the phrase, he felt compassion. He felt his womb grow warm toward someone else. Lastly, we see that the righteous man or that this man is righteous as we have seen. He maintains the standards that God has for him and others. And he leaves that mark, that trail throughout his existence. And so the righteous man is one who can impact and thus he will state that his righteousness endures forever. See, the life of grace and compassion benefits others as well as the righteous. There's great blessing and benefit to the righteous, but as we behave righteously, others are impacted as well. Notice also the, the stability and solidity of the terms in this next section, which we'll go over quickly. I've just underlined a few. You'll never be shaken, remembered forever. His heart is steadfast. His heart is upheld. He will not fear. Same word, fear, that we saw earlier. The one who fears in the Lord need not fear circumstances or the, the whims and wiles of those that seek to unseat the righteous. If he fears the Lord, he will be unshaken, steadfast, and upheld. And there will be a day in which the righteous will look upon with satisfaction at the plight of his adversaries, which is coming up at the end of the psalm. There is a description of the blessing that... that ends here in, in Psalm 112, verse 9, that he is ever generous. Because he has received grace, he has given freely 
to the poor. It's interesting, the word given freely conveys the idea to scatter, sometimes used to scatter seed. Think about being a farmer. You, don't, you want to be lavish. You want to be generous with your seeds because that's where your crops will come from. And so that same idea of being generous to those that the scripture now calls poor. We took a look a bit at the wealth and the riches. What is this idea of poor? Jesus says, the poor you'll have with you always. The poor, biblically, is those that are in want or need, any kind of want or any kind of need. There are examples in the scripture where those that we might consider well-to-do have need and thus would have this poor attached to them. They might be poor in spirit. They might be poor in in finances. They might be poor in abilities. This individual, the righteous man, is observant. He is noticing who is out there, who is in need and in want. Sixty times in the Old Testament this idea appears, 20 of them in the Psalms. It's found throughout the Scripture, the poor you will always have. I think this guy learns lessons everywhere he goes. He doesn't just learn from church and school and the righteous. He learns what life should not look like. The Bible says wisdom shouts in the street. We can often read the newspaper and learn how not to live. And this guy, I think, learns from the poor as well because he develops a sensitivity to people and understands all sorts of people are out there. And it takes one to really be sensitive to understand the needs and wants of others. Here's some things that he might have learned from the poor. The poor know they are in urgent need of redemption. The poor know know not only their own dependence on God and on powerful people, but also their independence on one another. The poor rest their security not on things, but on people. The poor have no exaggerated sense of their own importance or no exaggerated need of privacy. The poor expect little from competition and much from cooperation. The poor can distinguish between necessities and luxuries. The poor have learned to wait and have acquired a kind of dogged patience born of acknowledged dependence. The fears of the poor are more realistic and less exaggerated because they already know that one can survive great suffering and want. And certainly in a spiritual realm, the poor can respond to God's calling and leading with a certain abandonment and uncomplicated totality. The wise man observes everything and learns to be skillful in all areas of life and can learn from all different sorts of folks. As a result, he's ever remembered His righteousness endures forever. The fourth time the author has made that statement. His horn, his power will be exalted in honor. And it shows us that we leave a trail. It also reminds us that there's a day coming. As all wisdom literature reveals that the exaltation of the righteous at the vexation of the wicked will occur. And this was pretty clear. Notice in verse 10, the wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Notice the clear teaching throughout the scripture that the righteous will prevail over the wicked. The great benefits and blessings of being righteous we've seen in this psalm, and there's a great future benefit of being properly related to the Lord. Paul in Romans will write, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And as we've seen, as Brad has taught us before, the great two lessons, the the great two paths of life really become what I want to leave us with today. Remember, there's no gray 
in wisdom literature. There's black and white, the righteous and the ungodly. The way of the righteous, best seen in Proverbs 24. By wisdom, a house is built and by understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. But the wicked, described in Proverbs 16, they walk a different path. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Sobering message, very clear, very convicting, but nonetheless classic wisdom genre. The way of the righteous, the way to be emulated, the way of the wicked is to be expelled, is to be feared, is to be drawn away from. So we think about this this week, think about the roads of our lives. If we know the Lord Jesus Christ, we live in a, in a state in which our, we're rightly related to him, but how are we doing as we size up our lives against the righteous man in verses 2 through 9? And if you're here this morning and recognize I'm not a member of that group you call the righteous, it's simple. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Anyone by simple act of faith can have their life changed now and forever. Have righteousness come to your account by simply believing on the one who died and rose from the dead. God sees humanity through one lens, two different folks, righteous and the wicked. He calls us through little psalms like this to align more closely with the things that are precious to his heart. Lord, we thank you for the privilege to think about these things, to be challenged, to be affirmed, to be reminded that our relationship with you is forever. And that our impact on this earth now will affect things forever. I pray for the moms and dads in this room as they seek to raise their children and raise up mighty descendants Keep them steadfast, no fear. Remind them daily, Lord, of the good deed that they're doing. The righteousness will endure forever. Keep us away from the way of the evil one, Lord, the way of wickedness. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, the hymns wrote, Lord, help us not be that man, that woman. Help us love the things of the word of God, delight in them, to fear you, to please you. And enjoy the blessings of all those that are called the righteous. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.